Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm your host, Haley Wooden. Today on the show, we'll have a look at oil and how capital from Canada's oil sector is fleeing south. Plus, where a wave of policy changes leave BC real estate near the end of 2018. You're listening to BIV Today. Oil prices are up slightly this morning, but at the start of the week, they came tumbling down. West Texas Intermediate saw its sharpest one-day loss in more than three years. It also saw its longest streak of consecutive losses. Now, my first guest today has written a very timely piece of commentary that looks at North America's position when it comes to oil, and specifically our position when it comes to getting oil to market. The piece is called North American Oil Pipelines, a Liquids Tsunami Overwhelms Energy Infrastructure. And the author is Ram Vidali, Senior Vice President of Energy Global Corporates at DBRS, who joins me on the line today from Toronto. Ram, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Haley. Good morning, everybody. Good. Thank you very much. I want to start by asking you about what appears to be a fairly significant shift. It was just last month that we were hearing concerns that U.S. sanctions on Iran would push oil prices higher. Now we have OPEC, Saudi Arabia, the U.S. and others all looking at oversupply and the concerns that that brings. Help me understand what's changed over the last couple of months. Certainly. Um, the volatility in crude prices uh, are definitely causing some jitters in the market. Uh, the U.S. Uh, benchmark price, the West Texas Intermediate, is trading at 57 this morning. Um, and again, I mean, uh, the Canadian prices are down to 15, which causes concern. But there are certain factors that is that is causing this weakness. I mean, oil prices have come off the recent highs, yes, uh, because there's definitely this some slowness in demand from uh, China and India because of the higher oil prices that we had recently. And also the stronger U.S. dollar is hurting their economies, so there is a slowness in demand. And uh, in addition to that, uh, to ease the economic impact, as you just mentioned, Haley, that the the sanctions on Iran um, have been moderated by the U.S. just to make sure that the economic impact is uh, not severe. and 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 lastly, the, the the key part is although we are producing a lot more oil in North America, uh, we don't have pipeline infrastructure to take them to the market. I mean, the Permian Basin in the U.S. is also facing the similar shortage of pipelines to get, get to the Gulf Coast, and the Canadian market is also having a shortage of pipelines to get to the Gulf Coast to to go to the refineries and and, and export crude. So, I mean, as you said, OPEC signaled a supply cut yesterday, which sort of supported the price a bit this morning. Uh, but, you know, as far as our our forecast is concerned from a DVRS standpoint, I mean, we have a mid midpoint pricing for oil uh, in the range of 55 to $60 next year. Mm. And right now the price is around the 57. So we are in the midpoint. But there could be, you know, there is a lower end to it, there's an upper end to it, depending on the factors that I mentioned. If uh, demand slows further, we could have weaker prices um, coming coming forth. And, and if, let's say, the sanctions come back on Iran, the, the supply goes off the market, there, there is a, definitely a risk that uh, that, that could uh, pri- make prices go up again. So, so there are a number of these factors that are playing out in the market right now. 
You note in your commentary that when it comes to Canada's oil sector, it's become untethered, so to speak, from global oil market dynamics. Walk me through why this is and ultimately what it means for our oil sector here. Definitely. Um, so, uh, I mean, when we say Canadian oil sector has become untethered from global oil market dynamics, uh, what we're saying is Canada is the fifth largest oil producer in the world, but remains entirely reliant on uh, on the United States for its oil exports. So if uh, and and what is happening is the US has the advantage of existing pipeline capacity and new build to connect its uh, growing oil supply to refineries and ocean ports. Canada's infrastructure is definitely constrained in this regard because we are, have to transport longer distances to the, to get to refineries and the Gulf Coast, which creates a fundamental problem for us. So we will we do take a discount uh, from the world oil prices in order to uh, sell our product into the U.S. So although world oil prices did rebound from their lows uh, back in you know when we were talking about 2014, 2015. Uh, when it went down to $30, now it's at $50, $60. We still don't have the adequate capacity um, or, I mean, pipeline is one thing, but we don't have refining capacity also at the same time. So Canadian producers definitely are realizing the deeper discounts um, because, you know, we cannot build pipelines. I mean, the, one way is it, it's, it's sort of, uh, there's a number of delays uh, um, in, in building new pipelines and constructing and expanding existing ones. Mm -hmm. So we are selling oil at, you know, 40 to $50 discounts uh, to the U.S. benchmark price. So that's basically how we are disconnected from the benefit of uh, global oil market. And of course, it takes a significant amounts of funding to try and change capacity dynamics. And in your report, you note that we're seeing this flight of capital to the Permian Basin, to Texas, and sometimes even away from Canada when we have the sale of assets here and instead major investments being made south. What do you think ultimately informs these major investment decisions? Does it come down to the fact that it's more challenging to get infrastructure built in Canada and, and that price differential that you're talking about? Yes, I mean, definitely the price differential plays into that equation, Haley. Uh, the, the major uh, part of that is the, the delay in uh, getting anything approved. Uh, there's uh, you know lack of transparency in terms of regulation. Um, at the same time, you're looking at uh, the, the U.S. basins, the Permian, the Bakken, where the economics of producing oil are more attractive because infrastructure is available and they can get better prices uh, at a lower cost. So even the cost of production in the U.S. is lower than in Canada, and therefore uh, transporting uh, something uh, closer to, you know, if you're in Texas and you're sort of sending your product into the Gulf Coast, it is definitely cheaper than taking something from uh, uh, from the Western Canadian sedimentary basin and transporting it to the Gulf Coast. So there are there are certain competitive advantages that that the U.S. has, uh, and we are at a competitive disadvantage because our policies uh, do not permit expansions. We don't have uh, timely um, sort of approvals for building pipelines and whatever projects are there um, have been stalled or cancelled in the past. So, so, so that all that together um, has caused this, you know, has sparked a flight of capital from Canada 
And that sort of intensifies the need for us also to uh, build the infrastructure so that we can access the growing markets um, elsewhere, like in China and India, so that we diversify away from uh, the U.S. So that's that's basically what is going on. What essentially do you think it would take to maybe attract back some of this capital or attract new invest investments to Canada? I mean, definitely, if some of the projects that we have in the pipeline right now can get built, uh, that brings a lot of confidence back uh, into the uh, into the sector. Um, and, and if we we can develop a transparent national energy policy that moves away from fragmentation to integrity, uh, as we mentioned in our report, um, so we can maintain a strong standing in the global energy market um, and, you know, rely less on just one single market, um, which which carries its own risk. So basically, if if people find it diff- I mean, uh, difficult to understand that we have all these resources, but we are not able to execute on infrastructure um, and, you know, infrastructure like, like your veins in your body, I mean, if, if you cannot uh, trans transport, uh, you will get choked at some point of time, and that's what is happening. Is the Western Canadian sedimentary basin producers are getting choked because they cannot circulate what the product product is. Mm-hmm. So, so that 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 these these bottlenecks that we have in regulatory framework um, have to be smoothened out, have to be made transparent, have have to be made uniform ac- across provinces. Uh, in order to um, sort of facilitate execution of um, pipeline projects efficiently and economically. It's a very interesting idea. I'm here in British Columbia speaking to you and our neighbors, of course, in Alberta have very different views than many British Columbians have. Do you think there's the political will to come up with a, a kind of national framework that all provinces would be happy with? I, I think there is some consensus consensus being built into uh, the ideas that we've expressed in the report in terms of uh, policymakers are recognizing the fact that, you know, we have to have a balanced policy. I mean, we understand renewables, we understand that uh, the the ecosystem has to be maintained, but there has to be a balance in terms of low carbon emissions from pipelines as well. I mean, in terms of the industry has stepped forward and, and proposed a number of solutions to that in term, terms of balancing uh, the carbon impact of, of of the industry itself. And there is money being spent. There's a lot of research being done so that they can efficiently execute these um, at the same time, keeping their uh, carbon footprint to the minimum. So there are a lot of, lot of these discussions are happening as we, uh, you know, suffer the pain of $15 prices, uh, which is not sustainable for the industry to to produce more. So instead of shutting down Production, which will co- cost jobs and 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 the economy, um, it it may be a better solution to have a, a firm policy that would say, okay, we are open for business. Therefore, um, you know, this is the policy we have. Mm-hmm. And really quickly, if you don't mind, make the economic mm-hmm. case for British Columbians because it, it might be easy to say, oh, there will be job losses and economic turmoil and impacts in Alberta, but often, even though we're closely tied and we share a national economy, it can be easier on the West Coast to say, well, that's their province, it doesn't affect us, but that's not necessarily the case. So paint for me a bit of an economic picture about what's at stake for British Columbians. 
I mean, definitely, as you mentioned, it, it it makes a case for the entire country. It's not just one province or the other. I mean, when jobs are created, a pipeline is going through. It creates jobs on both sides of the border uh, from a provincial standpoint. And and the, the benefits of exports definitely, you know, uh, sustains this sector, which produces a lot of jobs. It helps the country's economy. So the country's economy being helped always feeds back to the provinces. So there is there is a, there is definitely that benefit of uh, promoting something that as a resource that we have and get better prizes for them. Excellent, Ram. Thank you so much for joining me on the program today with your insight. Much appreciated. Pleasure to be uh, on on your show. Thank you, Haley. That's Ram Vidali, Senior Vice President of Energy Global Corporates with DBRS, joining me today on the line from Toronto. A wave of policies have hit British Columbia's real estate market over the last couple of years, as we know. And the latest housing figures show that some of them, particularly mortgage regulations, are having an impact on would-be buyers and housing sales. They're also shaping the industry. I'm joined today by Norma Miller, Government Relations Manager at the BC Real Estate Association, which is the professional association for around 23,000 realtors in the province. Norma, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We're about halfway through November. Where would you say BC's real estate sector finds itself now near the close of 2018? Well, uh, obviously, the market itself has turned. Um, Sales have slowed. Our economists forecast uh, that the unit sales will decrease this year uh, by 23%, um, reaching about 80,000 units. The 10-year average is about, I think, 84,000, so that's a bit below. But um, the biggest factors there have been uh, the federal mortgage stress test and rising interest rates. Mm -hmm. But BC has a strong economy, so there's still a fair bit of demand. And frankly, we're returning to sort of balanced market conditions instead of really favoring buyers over sellers or sellers over buyers, we're, we're in, in better balance. And I know from the realtors, I know that that's better because every it, it's more equal and more fair. But at the same time, in the last couple of years, we've had significant policy changes in the real estate market, not only to changes that impact real estate transactions, but also changes that impact realtors and as a result, consumers. and. Um, there's still a lot of uncertainty in, in that area, and we welcome um, effective, thoughtful changes to that, uh, which we're getting signals from the provincial government uh, that they're coming. Mm. One of those changes, of course, I think would be the review of the regulatory structure of the industry. From the BCREA's perspective, what needs to change and, and what would the industry like to see? We certainly look forward to having a single regulator again. Uh, In in 2016, there was a rather hasty decision made to create a co-regulatory system. So we have uh, the superintendent of real estate, which oversees the Real Estate Council of BC. And there's been some tension between the two. So uh, not a very functional or effective system. So we look forward to a single regulator We also look forward to a system where the professionals who do the work have more input into uh, how 
changes are interpreted and implemented because the real estate council as it stands now consists of 16 people who are appointed by the government only three of those uh, and that's only been recently only three of them are uh, actual licensees who actually do the work mm. so the changes that have been made just haven't been well informed by professionals that's interesting. Now, some of the other areas, too, that I think would impact the way the industry operates would be, uh, for example, limiting dual agency. What kind of an impact do you think that's had on the industry? So to be clear, it's uh, on June 15th, there, uh, the government implemented a ban on limited dual agency. And what that means is uh, a realtor can no longer act for both or two parties in a transaction, whether it's a buyer and seller tenants and landlords, you know, or even two buyers, uh, as an example, two people making offers on the same property. And what we've seen there is, especially in small communities and commercial real estate, it's a big impact. This, um, we saw uh, some media reports in 2016 uh, focusing on limited dual agency is a big problem, even though there weren't significant statistics to indicate that. So, you know, this was a, a situation where a solution um, required a scalpel instead of a sledgehammer. But the, the decision made was to use a sledgehammer and apply this across the board to all real estate transactions everywhere in the province. It just isn't working in some areas. So in a small community where there aren't very many realtors, we're seeing um, consumers having to be referred in, in, in to multiple realtors because there are potential conflicts of interest and there's no way to get around that right now. Um, in commercial as well, we, you tend to see sophisticated consumers. So people who uh, already have the advice of other professionals like lawyers and accountants um, are being hamstrung. They don't have the choice to work with the realtor they know and trust and have worked with many times in the past because that realtor may be uh, representing another party in the transaction. And so it's causing this, this ripple effect of um, people who are maybe consulting with professionals from outside the geographic area who don't know it very well, who are writing offers on properties they haven't seen, uh, we're seeing uh, consumers, especially in small communities, super frustrated and um, in some cases very emotional about having to work with people they don't know or trust. And so we are gathering data from realtors. As I said, this is a change that only took effect in June. Uh, we're gathering data from realtors to understand what's happening because we're also seeing some offices close in smaller communities, leaving less choice for consumers. And we are putting together a solution uh, that we can offer to the regulators and to the Minister of Finance. Do you think the door is open to hearing that solution and maybe changing the way this ban is structured? We certainly hope so. Um, when we can demonstrate that in some cases consumers are less protected because they're choosing. Anecdotally, we understand more consumers are choosing to be unrepresented, which we know isn't the intent of this policy change, but it does seem to be the result. So we know the government is serious about consumer protection. We appreciate and support that. So what we're trying to do is just really understand what has been the impact here so we can make it work and have realtors be professional, consumers be protected.
Mm-hmm. Another relatively recent policy change would be the introduction of BC's condo flipping registry. How significantly does this change the sales process and information gathering process around pre-sale condos from a, from a realtor or seller's perspective? Well, this is a requirement for developers, um, not realtors. And to be perfectly honest, most, uh, a lot of developers aren't required to work with uh, real estate licensees. They can hire unlicensed people to um, uh, do the, this work, to prepare um, sales contracts. So that's where we come in and we say, let's let, level the playing field here and, and be serious about consumer protection. Um, developers should have to work with real estate licensees. So that's mm. one thing, one recommendation that we make. Um, in terms of gathering the data, you know, frankly, it's not a bad idea. We do, we support informed decision making. So we don't have um, as much data, I think, as the government needs to understand if there is a problem here. And um, if there is, we should know that after collecting data for a year or so. And then if changes are needed, they have the information they can use to make make those decisions. Um, I think we need to see some education for the professionals who are required to comply. Uh, We haven't seen that yet, but it was just announced. At the same time, though, these changes take effect January 1st. And we really want to make sure that compliance is uh, possible and all all the stops have been pulled to to make sure that that can happen. Mm-hmm. A lot of these changes, of course, happening at the provincial level, but we recently had our municipal elections and housing and what's going on in the real estate market was a top issue. And if not all greater Vancouver communities, it was certainly one of the top issues, top three issues and in Vancouver, no exception for sure. How much of a policy shift is the industry expecting at, at the local level as a result of the elections? Well, I can't I can't speak to that too deeply. Uh, the BC Real Estate Association we're focused more at the provincial level, and we don't really have the resources to to, to look at all local governments. Sure. Obviously, we're aware of, of um, some of the the big um, communities. Uh, certainly, Vancouver is looking at increasing supply significantly. We support that. I mean, all all levels of government have to work together to on housing affordability. It's super complex and uh, we uh, encourage that kind of cooperation and coordination. I think we're seeing too often uh, a level of government just forging its own path instead of coordinating and and making the most of available resources and um, complementing each other's policies. You mentioned a bit earlier the, the level of policy uncertainty that has existed in the market and to some extent continues to exist. What do you sort of foresee on that front over the course of the next year? Do you see the industry gaining a little bit more clarity? Are there still some major unknowns? What What's your take? I, I think we're encouraged by what we see from the provincial government. Um, the fact that they uh, that Minister James undertook a review of our regulatory system is very positive, because, frankly, I, I realize that it's invisible to most consumers. But if um, if realtors are feeling uncertain about what's required of them, then it, you know it casts a shadow over the work they do. They're absolutely professional and they have been extremely resilient so please please have confidence in in realtors they've they've been adapting extremely well but 
we need a solid, robust regulatory system to support that, and it trickles down to consumers. So that's really positive. We do um, uh, we see the market is slowing down. That those balanced conditions provide a little more certainty and solidity, I think, to both buyers and sellers. So that's positive as well. Um, I think as the government gathers more data, maybe we can get um, more clarity about the measures they put in place already. I hope that the pace of changes to real estate, uh, provincial real estate taxes is slowing because that has been a whirlwind and some of them are very confusing. For example, look at the structure of the property transfer tax. It's it has just gotten uh, more convoluted as um, over the last couple of years. And I really hope that slows down and that the government, when they look at um, uh, the new tax, the speculation vacancy tax, we have really appreciated the um, extensive exemptions for development property because that helps encourage supply, which is what we need uh, to improve housing affordability. We hope they apply that same logic to the additional school school tax that takes effect next year. Please exempt development properties because that isn't where we need more taxes. That isn't going to uh, help anyone with housing affordability. What have the conversations been like between industry and government on that specific point you mentioned? Do you think there's an opportunity or a willingness to maybe hear more about that exemption? I think so. I think um, the fact that the exemptions from the speculation vacancy tax have been implemented. That, that's a very positive signal. The government is recognizing the need not to hamper supply. So thank you. We appreciate that. Norma, and thank you for coming on the show with your insight. Much appreciated. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Haley. That's Norma Miller, Government Relations Manager at the BC REA. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Share our show on social media. Listen to episodes and read more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.